So brethren, we have been studying the name of our assembly, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. And in completing our examination of the importance of the word Bible, again, with all these words, we're not done with any of them. We'll be revisiting all these terms again and again and again. If you're going to have your Bible open, you're going to be discussing the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the authority of his word, and the importance and reality of the church. It is everywhere in Holy Writ. But we took five weeks to talk about the importance of the Word of God. And last Lord's Day, we talked about that wonderful proclamation given by the angel where he said of Christ, He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. And we talked about why that is such an important statement. It is a statement that reminds us of the fact that there is a direct correlation and exact correspondence between what the Lord declares and what happens in reality. In other words, everything that God promises will, in fact, come true. It's it's not like as if God gets it 99% of the time. Scripture reminds us of the fact that all that God promises, in fact, will come true. And this we have to remember from day to day, brethren, because Satan is constantly whispering in our ears, indeed, has God really said, in order to cast doubt upon his veracity and his faithfulness? We must refute this deception on a daily basis. We must remember that when we say that we are sovereign grace, Bible church, that we stand, in fact, what we're saying is we stand upon the sure foundation of God's word and nothing else. And this is one of the reasons why the expression of the reformers, sola scriptura, is so important. God's word is our foundation. We're not sanctified by the traditions of men plus scripture. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. That is such a crucial prayer that our Savior prays for us. And we must remember the importance of that from day to day. Now let me say this. As we come to the subject of the church, this is such an enormous subject. And it is difficult to know to some extent to know where to begin The text of scripture that I've chosen to begin with, anyway, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Notice that in verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul gives us three descriptors of the people of God. As the people of God, we're the household of God. As the people of God, we're the church of the living God. And as the people of God, we are the pillar and support of the truth. 
These are very important descriptors, and I want to say here this morning that I'm often reminded of the proverb which says that the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Originally, I was just going to go through these three descriptors here this morning, but in going through the first one, I realize that the first one is going to demand all of our time and attention here this morning. We'll get to the other two next uh, in the next few weeks. In other words, when Paul says that the people of God, that we as the people of God, that we are of the household of God, by itself, this is a very crucial description of who we are. When we contemplate what this is saying, we realize that this text, when we delve into the text itself and delve into this descriptor, we first of all realize that this says something about our standing before God. In other words, it answers the question, who are we? I mean, we call ourselves a church, we call ourselves the people of God, but what else can we say about really who we are as the people of God? And I would submit to you that that expression where he says that we're members of the household of God, that says a lot about who we are. This verse also says a lot about what our duty is as a church. We're going to delve in that, into that here this morning as well. And also this identity of our being members of the household of, of God tells us a great deal about our mutual responsibility to one another, our mutual bond. I have a relationship with you and you have one with me that is absolutely foundational to our understanding of what a church is. So there are layers to this, and I can promise you that even with this, we're going to be summarizing. In fact, I'm going to keep saying that with every one of these sections because the depth of this study far transcends what we're going to be going through, but we're going to be taking samples of these ideas, of these subjects, one after the other, and we'll layer in more and more as time goes on. But let's consider these preliminary truths that we're learning. And even before I get into the, the actual details of, of what Paul is saying when he calls us members of the household of God, I do want to make this a few preliminary notes. This text of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 is oftentimes abused. It is oftentimes abused. Um, Rome uses this verse. Maybe you're familiar with this, but Rome uses this verse and abuses this verse in order to make the argument that the church is the pillar and support of the truth in the sense that we are the ones upholding truth as if God's truth needs upholding. Or, or we could say it this way, um, they use this text in order to argue that everything that the church does, papal traditions, um, papal decrees, etc., uh, etc., et all this comprises ultimately what is truth, what is orthodoxy. But there's no way in which that idea can be extracted from this text. And here's why. We don't make orthodoxy. We don't make truth. It's a simple idea. We don't um, create truth. God reveals his truth, and he does so instrumentally through the church, but we're not the sources of truth. This is a, a key concept we have to keep in mind. When you look at the, verse of, uh, the text of verse 15, 
When Paul says, I write so that you may know how one ought to, and my translation has the word conduct, conduct himself in the household of God. That word, anastrephistai, is a word that speaks of, well, conduct, but notice this. It's a, it's a word that really speaks of the, the practice of our lives. In other words, it speaks of the, the daily conduct of the church. And so when we think about this idea, you've heard the word, and I think I've used the word before, orthopraxy. Orthopraxy. Now, again, if that's a new term to you, just let me explain. That's a combination, that's a combining of two Greek words, orthos, which means straight, right, or sound, and uh, praxi, for orthopraxy, praxis, from the Greek word praxis, means practice. When we talk about orthodoxy, that too is a combination of two Greek words. Orthos, again, straight, right, or sound, and doxa, the very truths that we uh, repeat and declare that declare the glory of God. So when we talk about orthopraxy, orthodoxy, we're talking about two separate ideas. Orthodoxy speaks of the body of truth of God's revelation, that which is in fact sound doctrine. Orthopraxy talks about the putting into practice of that sound doctrine. Now why am I saying all these things? Well, because there is a cause and effect relationship between these two ideas, and they factor in heavily to what we have before us in this text of 1 Timothy 3.15. If you see a church with a sound orthopraxy, that points us to their having a sound orthodoxy. You can't have a sound practice unless you have a sound doctrine as the basis of that practice. But if you have in a church heterodoxy, the practice, the, the uh, false teachings or false doctrines or corrupted teachings and, false, and corrupted doctrines, then you end up with a heteropraxy, a practice that is corrupted as well. We could put it this way. A good tree produces what? Good fruit. And a bad tree produces what? Bad fruit. It's, it's basically that simple, but you understand and see the, dis, the distinction and the relationship of these two ideas. The relationship of these ideas is very important. And when Paul is writing to Timothy, he is saying, we need to make sure, Timothy, you need to make sure that you're bearing good fruit stemming from the good doctrine that I'm giving to you stemming from the very gospel that I have been teaching you. The one leads to the other. But you cannot have an orthopraxy without a sound orthodoxy. Thus, when Paul refers to the church as the pillar and support of the truth, this does not mean that God's truth somehow depends upon us or that somehow we create truth. But what it means is, is that as the people of God, we are to be those who support and proclaim God's truth by virtue of what we declare and how we live. It's much like what Jesus taught his disciples when he said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
In other words, when the world looks at you and they see you loving each other with this transcendent, otherworldly love, the love that I have given to you, when they see this, they will see the alien nature of that love and see the glory of my love for you. They'll know that you're my disciples. It is in this very same sense, brethren, that when the world looks at us, they need to see that we are, in fact, the disciples of the very God who saved us, and they need to see that we are those who live in view of the excellent truth of the, the wonderful truth of God's gospel that he, by which he has saved us, that we ourselves proclaim and declare to others. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, concerning 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, not that the authority of the scriptures depends upon that of the church as the papists pretend, for truth is the pillar and ground of the church, but the church holds forth the scripture and the doctrine of Christ as the pillar to which a proclamation is affixed holds forth the proclamation. We're to be living letters, in a sense, that the world can read and see and know and understand that we are not the disciples of this world, but we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me add one more preliminary thought. I don't know that I've ever given so many preliminary thoughts before getting into a text of Scripture, but I need to say this. And you need to know this and see this in the text of Scripture. When the Apostle Paul talks about the need for the people of God to know how they are to conduct themselves in the household of God, that word conduct, again, on a strephistai, comes from the word strepho, which literally means turn. It means to turn. Now, that's kind of an interesting term. It, it, it's similar and is, is sometimes used in a synonymous way with the concept of walk. And Paul uses the word walk a lot of times, not just in the book of Ephesians, but throughout his writings. And we talk about the walk of a Christian, we're talking about their daily conduct. So there is similarity between the two terms. But this term bears the distinction of this idea of turning. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used for the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn. So what are we talking about? Why this word turn, and why is that distinction so important? Well, if you do a deep dive into this word, you begin to understand that this term is really speaking of the idea of, of how it is that we make choices on a daily basis in life, in such a manner that we may be going in one direction at one moment, but then we realize that we need to turn and go in a different direction. And we do so based upon circumstances sometimes, or sometimes based upon the reactions of others to us. Uh, if you see a child in need who is crying and in distress, uh, you may be going in this direction, but you see a child over here needing your help, what are you going to do? You're going to stop what you're doing, you're going to go help the child. If you're talking to someone and you're just having a casual conversation and someone comes up to you in an emergency needing your help and asking for your help right away, you're not going to ignore them. You're going to stop what you're doing and talk to the individual who's having some sort of an emergency. And when you read the scriptures, 
and you realize that there's a need to change your ways and to turn from your error to the pathway of God, you're going to turn. You're going to adjust your conduct according to what God declares. I mention all this because the Apostle Paul used this same word in Ephesians 2 where he described the course and manner of our life, our former conduct in the world when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he says this in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived or turned in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now think of the contrast. Before the Lord saved us, we had a conduct. We turned, we reacted, we made Changes and life decisions based upon not the wisdom of God, but based upon the lusts of our flesh and of the mind. We were slaves of our own lusts, the flesh and the mind, and we turned to these things out in our depraved spiral towards blasphemy and self-destruction. But it was God who, being rich in mercy because of his great love, he saved us by grace, Paul says. And so now as the redeemed of God, our former manner of conduct, the reasons why we turn in this direction or the other, all that has changed. Instead of being responsive to the lusts of our flesh, we now turn by the leading of the Spirit towards the wisdom of God. And Paul is writing to Timothy, and he enjoins Timothy that he himself and that the church of God must consider our conduct. Why do you turn in one direction or the other in order to determine the course of your life? And also notice this, he says this, and this is my last preliminary. In verse 14, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write... I write what? I write about these things. What things? The things pertaining to godliness. So in chapter 1, he warned Timothy regarding men who were engaging in fruitless discussions about the law, contrary to sound teaching, according, and, and who were teaching according, against the glorious gospel of the blessed God, he says. In chapter 2, he offers up instructions about how men and women are to conduct themselves in godliness in the church. In the third chapter, he talks about the ministry and qualifications of elders and deacons. In the fourth chapter, he talks about the need for sound doctrine and the need to reject worldly fables. Then in the fifth chapter, he talks about the need to provide for widows and those who teach, those elders who teach. Then in the sixth chapter, he gives concluding instructions regarding servants and masters, the need for sound doctrine, the danger danger of controversial questions and disputes, and the need to refute them. And then he gives warnings against those who have a love for money. And he wraps it all up by saying, 
to Timothy in so many words that he is to guard his life in his doctrine, which he explicitly stated back in the fourth chapter where he says, pay close attention to your self and your doctrine, to your orthopraxy and your orthodoxy. The doctrine and the practice, they go together. They go together. And our orthopraxy needs to be an expression of an orthodoxy that is rooted in God's word. We can't hope to study and appreciate and understand what Paul is saying without that basic understanding of the context of this text. So brethren, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Again, Paul says, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. In the household of God. Now, this brings us to the first question, the first point in our outline. What do we learn about this description of the church whereby we understand that we are the household of God? Well, this tells us something very important about our standing before God. The word that he uses here is rooted is based upon the word oikos, which speaks simply of a dwelling place in most cases. Sometimes it's used with reference to a temple or a sanctuary, but it is most often used, especially without any other contextual considerations, it's most often used to speak of a dwelling place, a place where you live. So for Paul to say that we as a people of God are members of his household, He's basically saying we live in his home. We are members of his household, not merely as servants, and that would have been good enough, but we are members of his household, and this is the idea that is really inherent in this expression. We are members of his household as his children, as his children. Now, brethren, how often time, how often do we use this expression of saying that we're the children of God and I don't know about you. I think it's just so easy to, to use words without thinking about the profundity of these words. But think of this. We're his children. We're his children. Remember the prodigal son when he came to repentance and he was returning to his father's house and he said that it would be enough just to come back to his father's house and to be a what? A hired servant, right? Right? Can we not also say that it would have been a great privilege just to be a helper to the angels? I mean, just to be in heaven and not hell. What a wonderful privilege that would be by itself. But mark this. He has given us far more than that. We're his children. And there's something remarkable and precious and special about that that we must never lose sight of. I can't help but to think that John, when he says this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, my translation has the word see in all capitals. Why? It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. Why? All caps. Because he's commanding us. It's a, Idate is the command, and it's basically this expression that says, behold this. Stop what you're doing and look at the love of God, whereby he not only redeemed you and made you in a member of his kingdom, but he made you a member of his kingdom as children. 
How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. It's not just a label. And it's not just the word that we use. It's reality, John says. And so when he says, behold or see how great how great a love the Father has given to us or bestowed upon us, or some translations have what manner of love. Those words, what manner of or how great the love. The idea here is from the word, the Greek word potopane, which speaks of the, it would usually be used in reference to an individual's background, their origin. When I lived in the South for two decades, uh, people knew that I wasn't a native of the South. I didn't talk like everybody from the South. Um, uh, I've had people tell me I have a Southern California accent. I didn't know there was such a thing. But if you live in the South, you know, you'll, you'll get comments like that. It's like you, you don't sound like you're from around here. And I think, well, yeah, I'm not. But uh, when we think about people and their backgrounds, we, we, we can see and depict distinctions from individuals, especially their accents and things like that, or maybe their culture and their customs. Well, this word, potopane, speaks of the idea of the distinction of something, the the distinction of a person, their background, uh, their origin, the tribe that they come from. So when John says, I want you to think about the particular quality or the distinction of God's love, I want you to think of the origin of this love. This is love that is not known among men. This is not love that human beings produce. This love that made you an enemy of God, a child of God, this is utterly alien, and it comes only from God. It comes from heaven above. That's what he's saying. And he commands us to look at this. He says, look at this. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. And then he says this, and don't miss this point as well. He says, for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. How alien is this love? It's so alien that now that it resides in our hearts, and now that it is impacting our lives, we no longer act like the members of this world. And that is not to our praise and glory. It is to the praise and glory of the one who has redeemed us and made us his children. And so we're members of his household, you see. We have a new citizenship, a new heavenly residence, a new name, a new nature. We have new desires by grace. We have been made aliens to this world, strangers and aliens. I'm becoming more hesitant to turn on the news in recent months. I don't know about you, but I, it's like I turn on the, the TV and I just kind of brace myself for what's next. And I don't even know whether it's a good idea to to watch the news anymore. Why? Because we live in a world where wickedness just goes on unchecked and the wicked prosper, as the psalmist says. 
That's why I began with Psalm 73. He talks about how he became envious of the arrogant. And you look at the, the prosperity of the wicked, and you think to yourself, are they ever going to get any justice? When's the last time you watched the news and you th- thought to yourself, are these people ever going to taste justice in this life? You know what the answer to that question is? You know, and I know, that they're going to get justice eventually. But in this life, they may never taste justice. They may just prosper until they go to the grave. How do we think of this? How should we think of this? We should think of it in terms of Scripture. In terms of the fact that, as the psalmist says, you know what? God may send them to their grave fat and happy and rich, with their eyes bulging out from the fatness. Why? Because he gives men over to their desires. He gives men over to their desires. They want to go on in wickedness, and they want to live in their prison cell of sin, and they want to have their their shackles on them for the rest of their lives. God says, you can have it. I'll make the shackles even bigger. I'll even even, uh, make the prison cell a little bit more comfortable. But if that's where you want to stay, if that's where you want to live, that's where you go. But i got good news for you. When you sin, we're, we're Christians, but we still struggle with sin. The good news is when you and I sin, our Heavenly Father doesn't just let us stray. He doesn't treat us like worldlings like the members of this world. Why? Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Listen to this. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now think of that. Why do some go through this life without any discipline in this life? It's because God says, I'm giving you over. You can have your riches. You can have your life the way you want it. You can have your prison cell, and you'll go to the grave. If that's all you want and you want to reject me, that's what you get. But our Heavenly Father does not treat us this way. When we sin, the Lord comes after us. He pursues us. Our good shepherd will leave the 99 sheep and go after the one. Isn't that good news? This is what we're talking about when we talk about the difference between the church and the world. Those who want to walk away from God and reject him, they'll get that. But for us as the children of God, we sin, and God loves us so much, he doesn't ignore us. He gives us loving discipline to bring us back to himself. And so he says, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. What God is doing is is he's refining his church, refining his people. When we sin, he disciplines us. And the ultimate end is, is that we would have an orthopraxy and a conduct of life that reflects his glory and communicates his truth. And he is committed to that process. So we're members of his household. We're members of the household of God. This tells us of our standing before God. We are children, and he treats us as such out of his great love. But this text also says something about our duty. What is our duty as members of the household of God? And again, Paul is giving us a very specific expression here when he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought, this is the translation I have in the NASB, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, why is this word ought an important word? And it is an important word. I think that the word ought sometimes is weak in the way that we use it. I don't know about you, but sometimes people will use the word ought in the sense of saying that something is advisable. You know, I, I advise you to do this. I think you ought to do this. I think that that option is a little bit better than, you know, that option. In, in the basic meaning of the word ought, ought means and speaks of the idea of duty or obligation. And in particular, the Greek word day, which is used here in this text from which we get the word ought, this speaks of divine obligation. Divine obligation. So when Paul is talking about how we ought to conduct ourselves, he's not saying, you know, this is advisable. I think, you know, these are good opinions and ideas. You know, just if if they seem to fit and match, you know, then go ahead and employ it. No, he's saying divine obligation. Divine obligation. How are we to conduct ourselves? We're to do so by means of the divine obligations given to us by God. So when you can join these two terms, day and anastrepho, this helps us to understand that God defines what our conduct must be based upon what he has revealed. We could paraphrase it this way. It's his house and we go by his rules. That's it. But that's basically what he's saying. His house his rules. And it's because it's his house, I don't get to inject my ideas and rules into the whole mix. And this is why we even talked recently, and I'll repeat it again, the whole idea of the, the five solas, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria, which is the ultimate chief end of everything, that's why the solas are so important. Because they bring us to the basics and, and the foundational ideas that we must not depart from. And I would say this, if you take sola scriptura out of those five, what are you left with? Or if you take sola scriptura and blend it with the traditions of men, what do you end up with? You end up with definitions of grace, grace and faith and the person and work of Christ that are now corrupted. Redefined by human opinions and ideas, such that every man and woman can do whatever is right in their own eyes. No, we are called to know how we ought to conduct 
ourselves. We have a divine obligation to have a certain conduct because we're in God's house as his children. And so we're not free to do whatever we fancy to do. Paul wrote his follow-up epistle to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He reminded Timothy of the fact that in in the last days, difficult times will come and men will be philadenoi, lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God. They will be evil men and impostors who will proceed from bad to worse. And he goes through this remarkable description about how depraved human beings are and how bad things are going to get. And he does all this, then leading Timothy to this important conclusion Which is not to say, uh, Timothy, in order to combat all this evil, you need to go to the Greek philosophers and figure out how to deal with this. He doesn't say, you know, go and find a new innovative program to revive the church or go to the proto-Gnostic teachers and try to find the best of what they have to say and infuse that into your practice in the church. No, instead he directs Timothy to look back to the sufficiency of God's word And he says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work, or literally for all good works. There's nothing missing in what God has supplied. And it is the very breath of God. It is theonoustos. It is the revelation that is from him. And we, therefore, have a sufficient revelation for our conduct. And it is our obligation to pursue that and nothing else. Brethren, it's easy to say these things. I think it's even easier sometimes to slip and to infuse the ideas of men. Sometimes we even do it without thinking about it. But I believe that this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, reminds us of the fact that we cannot combat this world of evil unless we are daily, on a daily basis, equipping ourselves with the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and praying that God's word would be effective in our own lives, impacting our own lives, our hearts and minds, and impacting the lives of others as well. Without the word, we have no capacity to comprehend what is obligated conduct, what is necessary conduct in the church. Some time ago, I mentioned to you Harry Emerson Fosdick and how it is that he promoted the wisdom of the age of every generation. His own generation, he said that the old basis of authority was gone. Truth is an open field to be explained. Nothing can be settled by a text. You can just make things up as you go along. But Paul says to Timothy, everything is settled by the text of Scripture. Because all scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I recently found an online article 
written by a group called Catholic Answers, maybe you've seen this, had a picture on the top of the article. They had a woman with a fly swatter, and she's trying to swat a fly. And the title said, Sola Scriptura is not so easy to kill. That was a striking title, and the picture that went with it, it's like they see Sola Scriptura as a threat, a pesky threat to their doctrine of the traditions of Rome and papal authority. Because if you're going to go by scripture alone, then church traditions and papal authority are now dissolved and destroyed beneath that authority of scripture. So the article goes on to speak of the importance of tradition and the various forms of extra-biblical authority. Now mark this, we never want to be cavalier and ignore the important and early creeds and councils of church history in which Many debates were discussed and settled regarding the Trinity and the hypostatic union. Even the hymn that we sang, Of the Father's Love Begotten, that was birthed out of the conflict over the question of Christology and the nature of the hypostatic union of Christ and his, his eternal sonship. We don't ignore those things, but we have to be settled on this issue. Scripture is Scripture. And even in the reading of a creed or a doctrinal statement, all these things need to be subordinated to God's word. We can't get that confused. So Scott was right. We're the pillar in support of the truth, and we do so by the orthopraxy of living the very truths that God has given to us by applying the orthodoxy that he has given to us in his word. But we do this on the firm foundation of God's divine revelation. So we've been brought together as the children of God. We're now no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's that language again. We're in the same home of our Heavenly Father, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Who's building this? Who put the foundation together? And who's building the building? Every one of those participles that are described, speaking of our being built, verse 20, the building, the whole building, he says in verse um, 21, being fitted together. And then in verse 22, again, he says that we're all being built together into a dwelling of God. All these are what are called passive participles. Passive participles. That just simply means that something else on the outside of us is doing the work. And who is that? That's the Lord God himself. God builds his church. He made the foundation. He's building his church. And it is all to his glory. And that one foundation that he laid that is established by the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, we recognize that that divine revelation that he has given, the symmetry is perfect, and that symmetry determines everything else with respect to the building that he is building. 
and there are no additions to this foundation. By the way, those who add to the foundation of what God has revealed, we call these cults. The Mormons have their additions. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their additions. Rome has its, tra its traditions and additions. But God calls us to know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God based upon our divine duty and obligation to do so on no other basis and foundation but his word. We must not, we cannot stray from that. Now, in light of the time, I'm going to ask that we put a bookmark on this third point. The fact that we're members of his household means that we have a mutual bond with one another. The depth of that subject requires, is going to require a lot more time. But mark this, brethren. We're brothers and sisters in one family. And that changes the way in which we think about each other. It needs to change the way that we think about each other. We must never have the spirit and attitude of Cain who, after killing his brother, said, Am I my brother's keeper? What hateful indifference that was that produced murder. But instead of having that indifference towards one another, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and even though we're to do good to all men, even the men of this world, we're especially to do good to those who are of the household of faith. Why? Because I have a distinct relationship with you that I don't have with the people of the world. You're my brothers, you're my sisters, and we need to treat each other in view of that relationship, that bond that God made. Well, we have a lot more to say about that, brethren. But let me just say a few more things here as we conclude. Let me offer a few concluding implications and exhortations. As I said before, there can be no orthopraxy, no practice, without a sound orthodoxy. We've got to stand on the word. We need to be students of scripture. We need to be invested in the question of asking this query, God, what do you require of me? Doing so from his authoritative word. But mark this. We're not to be a people who just put information into our heads, but then don't practice it who absorb doctrine and can repeat the doctrine, but then don't actually live the doctrine. Now, there's always going to be a disparity between what we know and what we do. Why? Because we're imperfect people. But we must never be comfortable with that. We need to ask the question, as soon as we learn a truth from Scripture, we then need to ask the question, well, how do I live now? How do I live? How do I conduct myself? How do I turn from the pathway that I was going on. If I see something corrective in scripture where I see that I, I haven't been doing things right, I, I need to go the right way. And I thought I was going in the right way, but no, I, this is the right way. And so we need to ask those practical questions about how do we live. When our Lord and Savior said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, commending them for their doctrine, and even to some extent their deeds, 
He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have, not, and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Brethren, we should be terrified by the thought that we should be so sound in doctrine, being able to repeat the orthodoxy of Scripture, but doing so without a heart for Christ. Our Savior calls us to hear his voice and then do what? Follow him. We turn and we walk towards him. And may it be that we do so because We love him as the one who first loved us. That's our calling. That's what it means to be a child of God. This is why Paul's emphasis on conduct is so important. Let us learn truth. Indeed, we must. We must be students of the scriptures, but let us then practice it and let us do so out of love for Christ. Secondly, As members of his household, we have this great privilege, brethren, and we need to keep this in mind. We've been called out from this world. We've been brought out of our our station and status as being aliens and strangers. We've been brought together as one people of God to this end, that we would indeed uphold and present the truth of God in our profession and conduct. And Peter says it this way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Dear brethren, when we talk to people, this is what we're telling them. We're telling them that we too were in darkness. We have to remind people of that fact because we don't want to come off to others as if we've always been in the light because we haven't been. We were in darkness and God out of his mercy and his great love brought us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. And now it's our privilege as the people of God, as the members of his household to proclaim his excellencies to conduct ourselves in the church of God and abroad in such a way that people see the truth of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God. And as we tell people of the fact, and this is a hard thing, as we tell people that they're in darkness, we need to do so with grief in our heart of that fact. May we not be casual or callous about it. It is a sad reality that men are in darkness. They need Christ. And know this, as we tell them this, a lot of people aren't going to like it. But it's never a reason for us to shrink back. They need to know they're in darkness. They're living their lives thinking that everything's fine. And even as they prosper and seem to get along so well in this world, someone needs to tell them that no, even though it seems to be good and everything seems to be fine, you're in darkness. And you need Christ. And this will be my last exhortation as we do this. As we do this. 
people will see and know and understand that, yeah, we really are from a different land. We have a different citizenship. We're a people who have been saved and redeemed by an alien love. I believe this is one of the reasons why John not only says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. And then he says in verse 13, and this is a command, do not marvel if the world hates you. Don't be surprised when that happens. John does not say, do whatever you can to compromise however necessary in order to get the world to like you. Don't do the things that will make you more amenable to the people of this world. Don't absorb the traditions and the wisdom of men in order to ease the tensions that exist between you and others. He says none of these things. We have been adopted and have been brought into the fold of God, members of his household. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. And brethren, as we tell others about Christ, may they see that we truly do cling to Christ. May it be evident to them that we truly have no other hope but Christ and that without him, our confession is what? Apart from him, we can do nothing. As Jesus said in John 15, look with me at this hymn that we're about to sing. Son of my soul, hymn number 412. Four hundred and twelve, son of my soul. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he is, in fact, the sun, the light of our soul. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, Abide with me from morn till eve, for without thee I cannot live. Brethren, do you agree with that? Without Christ, can we really have life? And then it says, Abide with me when night is nigh, for without thee I dare not die. When we share the gospel with people, that's what we're saying. Do not pass from this life without Christ. Because that is a terrifying contemplation. Our confession to them, to the world, is that because of Christ, we have hope. And we cling to him as the one who is the son of our soul. So let's stand together. Let's sing this to the Lord as our concluding hymn.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your infinite and unfailing love. Father, thank you for this great and amazing love by which you have made us members of your household. Lord, may we on a daily basis behold and contemplate this precious truth that we are in fact the children of God. As we tell others about this remarkable truth, may we be faithful to remind them that we're members of your household, not because of our deeds that we have done in righteousness, as Paul says in Titus chapter 3. But it is solely by your work of mercy and grace, such that you saved us by grace, not of our works, but it is solely your work and it is solely for your glory. Lord, thank you for these truths, and we pray that as we continue to look at this text of 1 Timothy chapter 3, may we understand who we are. May we understand our standing and what our duty is as a people of God. Help us to comprehend our mutual bond as brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of the riches of truths that are here in this text, may we drink them in and may we put them to practice for your namesake and glory. Lord, we offer up these prayers and petitions, thanking you for the fact that you love us and care for us in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. But we thank you for it all. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we pray and petition all these things in his name. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his truth. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who became his counselor and who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Have a blessed.